Please be seated. I guess you can tell things are going to be a little bit different today. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Nice to be back. Always a pleasure. Uh, this sermon today is an audience participation piece. I hope all of you have a copy of that song sheet that's out there. That kind of salmon-colored thing. It's good. Uh, you don't have to sing if you uh, don't feel like joining in. That's perfectly okay. If you'd like to sing, please do so lustily. Um, would love to have your company on these songs. My goodness, I'm falling apart here. Excuse me while we do a little technical fixing. Um, if you get so excited you want to clap out a rhythm, that's okay. If you get so excited you want to dance in the aisles, that's okay too. Though I, I think that's probably a stretch for Episcopalians. But, um, you know, let the spirit move you. You ready? The, uh, the passage that I really want to focus on in today's sermon is right in the middle of the gospel lesson. I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. The word that's translated here out of the Greek is orphans. That's a literal translation of that word, orphans. But if you read a variety of translations over the centuries, you'll find that a number of scholars have sought to translate that word not so much with its literal meaning, but its it's emotional meaning. So you'll find some translations that say, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you forsaken. I will not leave you bereaved. You will not be abandoned. And my personal favorite, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. All of these trying to, to paint an emotional picture of what it means to be an orphan to be completely alone in the world, to have no one who is looking out for you, caring for you, seeing after your needs, your health, your well-being, your education. You are alone, bereft, abandoned, forsaken. One of the things I do with my volunteer time is uh, support an orphanage in Tijuana. We have a number of children there five, six, seven years old who have been simply found by the police on the streets of Tijuana, alone, abandoned, foraging for food. And our job is to find them and care for them so that they will not be abandoned. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about New Testament <clears throat> is that if we really believe that Jesus was the Son of God, then he really didn't need any help in carrying out his mission. I mean, when you're the son of God, you kind of have all the power of the universe at your control, right? So he doesn't really need anyone in order to do his work. But for some reason, the very first thing that Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry is call together a group of people to join him in this effort. 
Now, we know a lot about the 12 disciples, but there were others. There's this little bundle of Marys that are involved in the inner circle. There's, well, there's more than one, you know. You kind of have to, which Mary are we talking about here, you know? And then there's Martha, and there's Lazarus, and we've, we hear about Nicodemus, and we hear about, you know, that the, the tradition tells us that Mark, the God, right, wrote the Gospel of Mark, might well have been that young man that runs away naked at, near the end of the Gospel of Mark in the garden. Uh, tradition is that Luke, writer of the Gospel of Luke, was a, was a friend of Mary's, and that's why the Gospel of Luke deals with Mary so tenderly and profoundly. So this inner circle of people that surrounded Jesus throughout his ministry, I figure was at least 15 to 20 people and probably more. Now, we call them disciples uh, or apostles. The early church frequently referred to them as saints. My hunch is that Jesus simply referred to them as his friends. Nothing complicated, nothing esoteric, just his friends. And I'd like to think that in addition to being a great storyteller, perhaps uh, Jesus had a good singing voice. Uh, and maybe uh, after a long day of teaching and caring for people, when, when they just gathered amongst themselves to tell jokes and swap tales of the road, maybe Jesus would pick up a lute and sing them a song. I mean, he, they were by and large clueless about what he was up to. And certainly clueless about the risks that he was taking. But he knew that there was trouble on the horizon and that it would be very likely that they might sometime feel abandoned. So maybe he'd sing them a song like this to teach them otherwise. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. Join me if you want. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, you just remember what your old pal said. Boy, you've got a friend in me. 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 You got in troubles, I got them too. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together, we can see it through. Cause you got a friend in me. Oh yeah, you've got a friend in me. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am. Bigger and stronger too. Well, maybe. But none of them will ever love you the way I do. It's me and you. And as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're going to see it's our destiny. You've got a friend in me, oh yeah, you've got a friend in me, mm -hmm. you've got a friend in me. I came of age, uh, turned 18 in 1968, 
Um, for those of you um, in the room who are geezers like me, rem remember that as uh, tumultuous times in this country. 1968 in January, the Tet Offensive began, was launched in Vietnam. Up to that point, uh, we'd been led to believe this was going to be some kind of a cakewalk. And then um, North Vietnamese came roaring down, and uh, the battle got fierce. A lot of lives were lost. And it was a huge wake-up call about where this war might be going or not going. In March of 1968, though we wouldn't know it until much later, um, the My Lai Massacre occurred, where a group of American GIs out of control in the heat of battle massacred 400 innocent men, women, and children in the village of My Lai. In April 4th of 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated at a hotel in Memphis. June 5th of 1968, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated at a hotel in Los Angeles. I turned 18. I had to register for the draft. I went before my draft board and said, uh, made my case as a conscientious objector in opposition to this war and others. And um, the gentleman on the draft board looked me square in the eye and said, son, this draft board has never granted anyone conscientious objector status, and we don't intend to begin with you. So we entered into a dialogue. Years went by, 1970, as in 69, the war continued to escalate. By 1970, it had expanded into Vietnam, uh, from Vietnam into Cambodia and Laos. And on May the 4th of 1970, um, in a protest against the war at Kent State University, four students were killed and nine injured by National Guard troops. These were unsettling times. And I, going to school and uh, continuing to in dialogue with my draft board, who did in fact finally succumb to my logic, um, tried to figure out where, what direction we were going. As it turned out, my issue with the draft board became moot. As those of you remember, there was a lottery back then. And um, my birthday, February 2nd, came up really high number in the lottery. And I was never in a position where I had to refuse induction and face jail time. But I knew other people who did. And I knew other people who went. And I know other people who went and died. At this particular time, I also found myself succumbing to part of my uh, family's biological and genetic heritage by sinking into a deep depression. One night, uh, roaming the streets of Tempe, Arizona, uh, after several nights of sleeplessness, it was finally obvious to me I needed help. And so I called the only person I could think of to call uh, the Reverend Dwayne Averill, who was the pastor of my United Methodist Church and a man I'd known since I had been in junior high school. And his response to me was basically, you've got a friend in me. And not only did he talk to me on the phone, but he said, where are you? And at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, he came and got me and took me home. 
And I gradually began to learn that not only did I have a friend in him, but in truth I also had a friend in Jesus. And that took me back to one of the songs of my early Methodist childhood, which might well be one that you know too. What a friend we have in Jesus All our sins and griefs to bear What a privilege to carry Everything to God in prayer Oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear All because we do not carry Everything to God in prayer Have we trousers and temptations their trouble anywhere. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness take it to the Lord in prayer are we weak and heavy laden come but with a load of care precious Savior still our refuge it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Teo will find a solace Many years later, <clears throat> when I had been to seminary and been ordained, was the United Methodist pastor at, uh, in Oroville, California, we were blessed to have a fairly large Hmong population settling into our neighborhood. Now, the Hmong people had been allies with us in the Vietnam War. They had fought uh, beside our GIs very bravely in that effort. They had lived in the hill country in the land up there between Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, uh, and were as um, displeased with the Chinese communists as we were. After Saigon fell and the South came under the control of the North, they systematically set out to eliminate all of these sympathizers and Hmong warriors. Many of them closed up camp and fled through the jungle with families 
wives, children, in a desperate attempt to reach the safety of refugee camps before they were killed. I talked with many of the Hmong people about that journey through the jungle, and they told me tale after tale about people who died on the route and how few actually made it to the camps. A few that made it to the camps made it to the United States. A few that made it to the United States made it to Oroville, California, and a few that made it to Oroville found their way to the First United Methodist Church, largely, at least initially, because we had a preschool. Uh, and they were convinced that the best hope for their children was to get a good education in this country that they were now in. But they were also very spiritually hungry people. They came out of an animus tradition in Southeast Asia, which means the gods that they worshipped um, and protected them were located in the rocks and in the mountains and in the rivers and the sky and the land. And when they left that place, they left their gods behind and felt abandoned, forsaken, alone. Now, one of the things I did there was I, I taught a Bible study class along with a gentleman by the name of Joe Vang Zhang. Uh, I would, we pared this down to Christianity 101, just your bare essentials. Most of these people had, had really didn't know anything about Christianity at all. This was an entirely new thing to them. They were not raised with any knowledge about Jesus, about the faith. So I made it as simple and straightforward as I possibly could. And I did it in English, and Joe translated it into Hmong. And one day, after our Bible study class, a gentleman takes Joe aside, and he is clearly furious. And he is reaming Joe out in no uncertain terms. I cannot understand a word of Hmong, but you know you can tell when somebody's mad. It really doesn't matter what language they're speaking. You know, it kind of comes through. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what did I do wrong? Did I, did I, how did I offend this man? Did I cross unknowingly some cultural barrier that, oh, and I just felt terrible about it. Finally, they wrapped things up and I said to Joe, I said, what was that about? He said, it's fine. It's, it's all okay. And I said, well, what is that? He said, well, that's my cousin. This is my cousin. And I said, well, what's he upset about? Well, he's really mad. He wants to know how long I have known about this and not told him. <laughs> and my eyes were opened to the power of the gospel. When you come to it unawares from a place of pain with a deep spiritual hunger. Unlike most of us who come to it from a place of comfort with this kind of vague spiritual thirst. And I was so blessed to be able to see Jesus through fresh eyes who saw the gospel as life-changing for them. And this is a song that I think captures their enthusiasm. A country tune, I don't know. Some of the people that earlier today didn't know this, maybe some of you do. I have found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. 
He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. The lily of the valley, in him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow he's my comfort, in trouble he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Some of you know that. Margaret, sing it out. He, 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 all my grief has taken and all my sorrows borne. In temptation, he's my strong and mighty tower. I've all for him forsaken and all my idols torn from my heart and now he keeps me by his power. Though all the world forsake me and Satan tempt me sore, through Jesus I shall safely reach the goal. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He'll never, never leave me, nor yet forsake me here, while I live by faith and do his blessed will. A wall of fire about me, I've nothing now to fear. From his manna he my hungry soul shall fill. Then sweeping up to glory to see his blessed face, where river of delight shall ever roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He's the lily. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. hundred years ago now, there was another war. We're reading a lot about it in history these days. It was the war to end all wars. Remember that? Didn't work out that way. We've had a few since. This particular war was a brutal experience, particularly on the European front. There were two young men, friends since they were kids, who enlisted together, served their country, ended up on that European front in those trenches. And uh, one day they were sent out into no man's land to try to take a little piece of territory. They figured it was probably pointless, but they were good soldiers, do what they were told. They got out there and the barbed wire was thick and the machine gun fire was withering and it didn't take too long before they came crawling back into the trench. One guy fell down to the bottom of the trench, caught his breath, looked around for his friend and didn't see him anywhere. Thought, well, maybe he's further on down. He crawled on down a little ways, didn't find him. Walled back, didn't find him there either. Figured he must not have come back. He must be out there in no man's land somewhere. And he said, I'm, I'm heading out. I'm going to go find him. And just as he starts to scramble up the side of the trench, his uh, officer grabs him and says, what the hell do you think you're doing? He said, my buddy's out there. I'm going to go bring him back. He said, the hell you are. 
He's, he's out there. He's dead or near dead. And there's nothing you can do about it except get yourself killed at the same time. You're not going out there. It's stupid. He turned to walk away, and just as he turned his back, this young man scrambled up out of the side of that trench and crawled through the muck and the mud out into no man's land again. About ten minutes later, you can see his muddy hand over the head of that trench, and he grabs a hold, pulls himself over the edge, and down into the trench, dragging the body of his dead friend with him. Collapses in the body of the trench, holding the bottom of the trench, and he, holding the body of his friend, and the officer sees him and comes over and yells at him and says, I told you, that was stupid. That stupid. He looked up at him and he said, no, no, it wasn't stupid. Because when I got there, he was still alive. And he said to me, I knew you'd come. It's the promise of the gospel, friends. I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. When you're down and troubled and you need a helping hand and nothing no, nothing is going right. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest night. You just call out my name, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you gotta do is call, and I'll be there, yes I will, you've got a friend. Got a friend. If the sky above you should turn dark and full of clouds, and that old north wind should begin to blow, keep your head together now and call my name out loud. And soon you'll hear me knocking upon your door. You just call out my name, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you gotta do is call, and I'll be there, yes I will, 
got a friend. Now ain't it good to know that you've got a friend when people can be so cold. They'll hurt you, yes, and desert you. They'll take your soul if you let them. Don't you let them. You just call out my name and you know wherever I am I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall all you gotta do is call and I'll be there, yes I will got a friend, you've got a friend.